Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to our Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. For more than a century, the Hoover Institution's distinguished scholars and renowned library and archives have been collecting knowledge and generating ideas that support the pursuit of freedom and improved human condition. The dissemination of our work has had a direct and significant impact on the creation and execution of important public policy initiatives in the U.S. and around the world. In the face of this worldwide pandemic, innovative ideas that lead to actionable strategies are more important than ever, especially when lives are at stake. During this series, you will hear from our top scholars. They will, they will provide you with thoughtful and informed analysis, as well as policy responses to mitigate the potential effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. As a reminder, we'll, we, we will be taking audience questions today and encourage you to submit your questions at the bottom of your screen. Today's briefing is from John Taylor, who is the George P. Schultz Senior Fellow in Economics at the Hoover Institution and a professor of economics at Stanford University. John served as Undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs for President George W. Bush. He was also a member of President George H. W. Bush's White House Council of Economic Advisors and was a senior economist at the Council of Economic Advisors for Presidents Ford and Carter. His latest book is entitled Choose Economic Freedom, it's co-authored with George Schultz, and it's available online from Amazon.com. John, thank you for joining us today. Good to be here. Thank you, Tom. John, uh, you were serving at senior levels of the government uh, as the Undersecretary of Treasure, Treasury for International Affairs during another consequential time in our history, September 11th. What were the lessons that you learned from that experience that may be applicable today? Thanks for that question. It, Tom, it's, it's, it's similar in the sense that it was a surprise. No, no one knew it was coming. Uh, and then we suddenly had to react very quickly. And one of the things to be sure was uh, to close the access that Al-Qaeda and their affiliates had to funding. And so that was a closing of markets, so to speak. But at the same time, uh, we emphasized, President Bush emphasized that we wanted to see uh, emphasis on keeping markets open whenever possible. And th that was part of the mantra. And uh, so both went together. And I think the lesson that I've learned from that is it sometimes take a, it takes a special emphasis on markets, on the operations of the economy to make sure the damage is not, uh, not, not too bad. And so there's a bit of a lesson. This is a different event. It's larger in many respects. But at the time, we thought that was going to be large, too. We thought it would be a much bigger economic impact than it, than it tended to be. Interesting. What about, uh, what about parallels from 2008, uh, the financial crisis? How does that relate uh, to today's crisis? It's also similar in this sense that uh, less of a surprise because we could see it coming. And uh, a lot of people forecast it. A lot of people were pointing to the policy that led to it. So in some sense, it was a, a part of our... Uh, policy mistakes. It was not an external force. I think some of the actions that were taken uh, are being taken now, some of the Fed's facilities, and they're working. I think part of the experience from that is, is beneficial. Uh, one of the things that I've uh, worried about back then and uh, still worry about now are the one-time payments of, uh, to people for taxes, that they'll just save that and won't spend it. I think that happened in 2008. So find ways to encourage those who can afford to purchase things and can find ways to purchase things, even online. That should be emphasized more. I think there's also more emphasis now on the uh, small businesses, this 
small business administration loans, and that's good. Um, that's a difference. Yeah. Uh, I want to remind everybody uh, that's just joining us that I'm Tom Gilligan, and this is the Hoover Institution's virtual policy briefing with John Taylor. John, you know, the president had, has said that he's concerned that the cure cannot be worse than the virus itself. What he's trying to intimate, of course, is that we have to figure out a way to respect the health concerns that the virus poses with the important economic concerns going forward. How do you think about that issue? What do we need to do to kind of get the economy opened up again in the future while respecting the health concerns that the virus poses? I think it's a very important message. You don't want to say we don't want to pay attention to the restrictions, the healthcare generated restrictions, the shelter in place, the social distancing, because those are very important. But at the same time, as we put these into place, let's find ways that encourage other parts of the economy to operate. And so even the social distancing means you don't go to the stores as much. Uh, you watch uh, getting too close to people. It doesn't mean you can't be purchasing things online more. And there's, that, there's other ways to get around it. But I think that that's what we need to be looking for now so that uh, the cure doesn't become so difficult. And it could be if we're not careful. So I, I like to emphasize keeping the economy open as much as possible, getting back to normal as fast as possible. And, and some of the things that, that I just mentioned are part of that. There are others. Part of it is just the emphasis, uh, because right now, there's so many healthcare people that are emphasizing uh, the contagion, the restrictions that are necessary to prevent that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, John, you know, we have some interesting questions coming in already. Let me, let me kind of pose those. George asks, uh, a recent IHME projection shows that COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. will be close to zero by June 1st. Why is our government considering another huge CARES package? And that's a question, obviously, about are we, are we beginning to do yeah, sure. Well, well it, I, hope, I hope it turns out uh, that way. I think that it, we're not, it's not clear. We've just seen some of the, the slope of the curve uh, a little less steep. It's, people are emphasizing that as a, a sign. Uh, the, the models are uncertain. Uh, there can be other things that occur, occur. So I think it's important to be ready. But I think the, the question about another big package is a, is a good one. Let's be sure that we don't just throw things uh, away. The, we had a trillion dollar deficit before the crisis began. Mm -hmm. And we're not gonna have a trillion and a half plus that, so maybe two and a half trillion. Mm -hmm. And so adding to that is a concern and it eventually has to be uh, paid back. There has to be some reduction in the debt. But so I think that is a concern and whatever is done I think that now is the time to focus more on the rest of the economy, especially if George's analysis is right. How do we make sure that that improvement in the health situation translates quickly into our actions? People, how do we get people back at the ball games? How do we get the amusement parks open? How do we get the small businesses open fast? What's going to give them the assurance it's not going to come right back to hit us again? Yeah, interesting. Uh, I'm going to combine two questions because they're very intriguing and they speak to the appropriate amount of preparation for things like this. Kathy asks, it is frequently said that no one knew this was coming, but we did know a pandemic would come, just not the exact timing. If this is a 100-year storm, we probably shouldn't wait 99 years to get ready for the next one. She asked for your opinion on that. And Mo asked a similar question. I, I think it's an intriguing question. Was the financial uh, system less prepared for the pandemic than the healthcare system? 
Well, both are important questions. I think, let me say, it's very hard to prepare for events that you don't know are going to occur. It's just, it's just hard for an economy, hard for the politics to do it. I mean, obviously, we, we, have, we did a lot of research on economics about crises. Uh, we weren't ready for this one. The models don't have the pandemic in them. They should in the future have some, some way to do this. Our economic models, I'm saying, economic models could be improved. I've been involved in models making my whole life and there's, there's no pandemic variable. And so that, that's got to be fixed. And the interaction between that and the economy would help us a lot. And I think that the, the same thing is true about um, preparation more generally. The, um, I think in some sense, the health, I mean, the healthcare industry has models too. I mean, I've never heard the model, word model referred to so often in the last few weeks. And they're almost the pandemic models and their epidemiological models. And so those are important too. Um, I don't know if they're better, quite frankly. The, the, I know the models a little bit. They're not the kind of things that I would say, this is a great model. Yes. So I'm not certain that they are, but I do know that our economic models need to be improved. And I can't necessarily say the same for the healthcare models. Yeah. John, Dana asked a very interesting question. Um, given that about 70% of the economy is consumer-based, and that business requires a degree of stability and clarity for investment decisions. What is the role of clarity and expectation setting in communications around the pandemic? Might it not be better for a longer, more stable set of expectations about distancing than turning the economy on and off via lockdown and wide open? It's a very good, very good question. How are we going to make the economic adjustments and what's the strategy for doing it? I have been emphasizing just don't do this, explain why you're doing it. Why is the Fed doing this? What's the rationale? Some do it better than others. I mean, it's harder. It, it goes to the idea of having more discussion of the economics in this. Mm -hmm. You're shutting down parts of the economy. What are you doing to alleviate that at the same time? What is the description of how you're doing it? So a strategy is important. Also, I think the emphasis here on a longer term strategy uh, John Cogan and I are working uh, at, at the Hoover Institution on how to undo the large budget deficit, the, the debt growth that's going to happen. So that's down the road, but it's important to start thinking about now, and it maybe have implications for the for the current situation. So I think it, I think an overall strategy is most important. I've always thought about that. Better economics is when there's a more of a strategy in place, a, a description of what you're doing rules, et cetera, but it's, um, it's not enough of that now. You can just see the, the mentality is let's fix this problem. Let's not worry about next week or next month, but I think it'll improve. Got it. Uh, John, Ethan asked the following question. You're an economist, right? So an occupational hazard is that people want to know what you think about the GDP. So Ethan asked, what's, the best, what's your best estimate of the drop in GDP for this given year? Well, it's by quarter. So the first quarter, which is just finished, is going to show a, a negative. Uh, it's not 10%, but it could be 2, 3, 5%. The second quarter, most likely larger than that. Um, it, and then, but now you're talking about two contingencies. How deep will the healthcare crisis be? George had an estimate which is more favorable, mm -hmm. uh, but it could be worse than that. So the downturn could be worse. And the second contingency is what's done about it. What's the What's the response on the economic side? So I've been arguing, let's find some ways that we can continue commerce, um, buying and selling, uh, even air in areas which are, 
are closed. Shopping is harder to do. Small business is harder to do. Movie theaters is harder to do. But there's things that you can do online and they do represent an increase in the economy's uh, ability to produce because those things have to be produced. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that I, should be, I think should be given more attention than it has been so far. I'm optimistic it will change, but it's not just how the economy gets going again, it's how to re- reduce the, the depth of the decline. Interesting. Uh, John, let me follow up. Um, are there anything our leaders could or should be doing now to uh, continue commerce or make commerce more feasible under the current situation or under a maybe less stringent medical lockdown? I think there's a, a good discussion. I uh, don't know the insides of these discussions between the, the president and industry, um, both uh, not just healthcare, but uh, airline industry, transportation industry, manufacturing. So that is good. So obviously a large part of the economy is the private sector. And so having them respond as much as, as normal as possible is good. I do think in addition to that, some, some uh, people thinking that has worked in the past, I mentioned like 9-11, there was an effort to keep the economy going. So more, more of those people involved would help a lot. And it's partly an attitude, partly a philosophy, partly a emphasis that here's what we need. Let's, don't, let's not forget about this. I just uh, remember going to many meetings, the situation in the room in the White House after 9-11, and the emphasis was who's up and who's down on the political side, or where, how are we going to deliver this, this military operation on the defense side? And you sort of had to speak loudly about the economics. And when you did, people listened and it made a difference, but it wasn't like you just sat back and didn't say anything. And I think that's a concern. You have to have spokespeople for the economic side of this equation. Interesting. John, you're an expert on the Fed. Uh, Randy asked the question, do you think the Fed or Reserve is doing the right thing? Yeah, basically, I think the facilities that they've created to keep the markets open, the commercial paper facility, uh, the municipal bonds are part of that. They've recently introduced a a currency dollar-based facility where smaller central banks can get access to dollars uh, to satisfy the demand they're seeing without actually, without actually selling their treasuries. So those facilities are good. Some of them were used in the past. Some of them are new. I think there could be more of a overall description, a strategy, again, about what's going on, how this works, how this interacts with the economy. One area which I'm a little worried about is the proposal to make loans to to businesses, smaller businesses, non-financial businesses. That's not something the Fed has normally done. Mm-hmm. They're required to look at it. And uh, I think so far it hasn't really, as far as I know, been operational yet. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, that's a different kind of thing, not the thing that normally, that normally does. And I add one thing, um, the Fed's actions has increased their so-called balance sheet a lot. It was like they increased it in 2008, 2009, started to reduce the size and now it's increased a lot again so that has to be undone uh, or the nature of central banking will change so i'd like to see some discussion of that again it's more of a longer term medium term but let's not forget about those as we go through the current events yeah john uh, charles asked a question that is a normal retort to people who worry about the economy and it's and it's the following. Uh, when only 150,000 individuals have immunity or have been tested, uh, they've tested positive, how can we reopen the economy of 150 million people and possibly overwhelm the healthcare system again? So he's worried about 
you know, how yes. feasible is it to, to go back to working again the way we were? No, it's a very serious concern. So here I would say there are some things, obviously, that, that don't require the interaction at least as much, and that is all of the online purchases, the, is the Amazons and uh, Costco. You go down the list, many of them have the ability to facilitate deliveries. And so that is, that's not going to be 100% of the economy, but it's going to be a large part. I think at the same time, you have to say we're not letting down on the social distancing. Uh, that seems to be working. Mm -hmm. And so you don't want to say just the, the flexibility that I would like to see more of mm -hmm. doesn't mean relaxation, doesn't mean halting. It means finding a way to make them better, make them work better. And again, I guess this quick analogy of 9-11, uh, you wanted to stop the flow of funds to the bad guys uh, without stopping the flow of funds to the rest of the economy. And so it did require some international cooperation at that time, required a lot of knowledge, a lot of intelligence. It's a different situation now to be sure, but the, the analogy I think is, is, goes a long way to understanding what we need to do. Interesting. Uh, I'm going to combine two questions here, John. They're both uh, of similar vein. Maria asks, what are the short and long-term geopolitical consequences of this pandemic? Gilbert asks, will this change globalization strategies of countries? Geopolitical, I think part is, I'll go back to the economy a bit. Uh, what will people think about uh, markets and capitalism and freedom after this? And I, I think it'd be terrible if the reaction is, oh, we need to have bigger government, we need to have more central control. But there will be a debate about that and it'll be more intense and people will use arguments that are some, sometimes good and sometimes are bad. So I think the, the kind of research that we're doing, which uh, at least I'm doing, focuses a lot on, on markets and the value that they can provide in terms of pricing and services and getting the allocation of resources and getting the inventions going, getting the entrepreneurs going. We don't want to throw any of that away. In fact, I think the, there were all, there's always been threats to that. And uh, they, after 9-11 and after 2008, 2009, you began to hear more of that. So it'll be, a, it'll be a pressure. And I think those of us who think markets are a huge advantage want to fight back against that. So that's a global political thing as well as global economic, geoeconomic. I think on the security side, um, we have shown a great deal of resilience and strength from our military. And I think that's, that message is clear. Uh, the, when the, the generals and the admirals speak out, you can't help but be impressed of what they're doing. They're being called to do things they haven't done before. You, there's you know, some always going to be complaints about this and about that. It's going to get most of the attention. But just sit back and think it's enormous what these enormous forces are doing. And there, and there, there's a, even a attention now to the, the illegal drug trade coming from Latin America. There's more of that, but the military is responding with, with in ways they haven't done before. So I, I think that um, it's a good sign that our, our military is working well. It's um, something to keep in mind. Um, John asked a question kind of opposite of what Charles asked. And he says, looking back, do you think it was a, do you think it was wise to shut the economy to the degree that we did? Well, I don't think we had any choice. Um, this is the social distancing and the, the efforts to um, keep people at home and that's un had bad effects. I think there was no, no uh, alternative. 
what could have been better and more importantly what can be better is ways to have offset that to have other types of exchanges of goods and services other types of employment and part of that is this is testing of antibodies which again is not 100% but it allows some people to go back to work and and more of that i think should be done that that's important so it's not so much that we shouldn't do the things that stop the contagion um, we have to do that but that we can do things that make those stoppages or closures less damaging and that's what i would focus on john once the once the crisis is over suppose we we get a break on the virus and it just dissipates and doesn't become big of a, that big of a problem are there any innate things that would keep the economy going back to the level it it, it was so, Tom, what I think is important to do now is th this is to some extent what I think we should be doing anyway. Um, we've had a, we have a lot of regulations on this economy. Mm -hmm. um, you can do estimates that the cost benefit analysis has not been used properly. I think this is a time to say, okay, let's let's have a moratorium on regulations. Let's just stop them for a while. Of course, we need to worry about health and safety, but let's stop them. Let's have say occupational licensing which is largely a state issue or even a local issue let's have those be applied more wisely so maybe even some medical professionals who are in retirement could come back uh, that's an example where you could have a, a occupational licensing but there's many other areas and i've always thought and i think this is a bipartisan issue the, uh, Obama administration wrote about occupational licensing. Why not use this as a time? Hey, it's more important than ever. It doesn't, it doesn't require money, doesn't require a budget, but it brings more people back into jobs which they've been excluded from. I would say also another thing on the policy side, I'd like to see some agreement that we're not going to increase taxes for a while. Mm -hmm. um, I think that would be easy for the current administration to do, but there's lots of people on the other side. And if they could be brought into the discussion, okay, we've got this problem. We don't want to increase taxes. We want the economy to thrive. I think that would be a beneficial thing too. I, I, I think there was a bit of that back in 2008, but uh, obviously there was a tax increase after that. But I think that it's there's more that could be done on getting the, the overall stance of policy, regulatory policy, tax policy, on track, which would be beneficial to the economy. Now, it would be a boom to the economy to know we're not gonna have a big tax increase. Yeah. John, I've got a lot of questions on the impact of COVID-19 on the technology industry, and specifically how the technology industry might be used to fight the virus or restart the economies. So Bradley asked the following question, what do you foresee in surveillance and monitoring technology being employed to manage disease spread as well as helping to pinpoint where the economy can be opened up and where it may make sense to keep it locked down. Wouldn't this help us make better decisions in smaller geographic areas? And Joe kind of follows up with the question, China and other Asian countries are using technology, smartphones, et cetera, to, to monitor their citizens' ongoing health in the months ahead. Shouldn't we go to school on some of their more effective measures? Well, I think I've been worried about those. Um, measures to be sure you can track people as they walk down the street um, there may be ways to both get the better surveillance better monitoring um, and not have that i'll give one example which um, 
struck me. Uh, Jim Bullard, who's the president of the St. Louis Fed, suggested that there'd be very good antibody testing and others so that people could wear an I, like an I voted badge on their lapel. I voted and said, I'm, I've got the tests. So that's the kind of thing that I think the caller is worried about. Isn't that like a big brother type of operation? But if we can go to this, to the, the extent that the individuals who pass the antibody test who are relatively immune, then that would be a benefit too. So that, those are the technology things that I, I would emphasize. The other technology thing, which is really not directly related to the health, it's, it's related to the way we do business. So we're now, this is an online conversation, it's terrific. Um, we don't need to be in the same room. We're learning more about that every day. I'm giving a course at Stanford this quarter, the spring quarter, which is um, completely online. I developed it five or six years ago. Uh, there was less demand, now there's huge demand. And so that's, so I think we need to be responsive to that. Fortunately, I did this already, but others haven't. And we're gonna see new methods. Uh, the schools in California are uh, K-12 are closed through the rest of the year. Those teachers should be thinking about ways to teach the kids uh, basic skills. And uh, so those are the things that I could see. And I think the technology firms are, um, are really ready to go and take advantage of this. They haven't seen demand for it. Actually, in the K-12 schools, there's, there's sort of been a restriction or bureaucracy, if you like, that's prevented. I think that will be relaxed. John, John, James asked a question about labor markets and, and unemployment insurance. It says, it's, uh, it seems the worst part of what people are feeling is, I'm sorry, that's the wrong question, stand by. Justin asked this question. We have seen that the current unemployment scheme in the U.S. is, is inadequate for the 21st economy, century economy, not, notably its failure to cover self-employed individuals. The gig shared economy, work slowdown without firing, et cetera. Do you see a major restructuring of unemployment insurance in the post-COVID era? For example, in Canada, self-employed workers can voluntarily contribute to unemployment insurance and thus be covered in the event of salary interruptions. What do you see what's going to happen with policy around unemployment insurance, John? So I think there, I think there, those kinds of changes will occur. They need to occur already. I think I'm not sure to the extent that the crisis itself will generate more of those. That's though maybe people could see the the disadvantage of uh, the gig economy for certain individuals. We've had efforts of that in California already, but I, I think those are things that are probably more longer term. I don't see a big change. The unemployment uh, compensation increased quite a bit in the. CARES bill that was just the past, the 2.2 trillion, so that's beneficial. People complain that that's too much, that it's generated, uh, get more money if you're, if you're uh, unemployed than if you work. Obviously that provides some crazy incentives. So, and, and I think the, the call really says, can we improve the incentives of our unemployment compensation system so it applies more generally, more certainly, and more evenly, and I think there clearly are. Whether the crisis itself will generate a demand for that, I'm not so sure. Yeah. John, you're an international uh, econ economic expert. Uh, Michael asks, what effect will the crisis have on the economic stability of the European Union? Well, it's, it's hard for the European Union. They've had different situations. You know, Spain and Italy have been damaged quite a bit already. They've, they've already had disputes about uh, policy itself with Germany versus France. So I think it's trying. Um, what they have done with the new president, uh, 
Mrs. Lagarde, Madam Lagarde, is to have some big policy changes like we've had in the U.S. And so those are those are have to be done anyway. But there's a question about what other kinds of policies there will be. What kind of will there be special bonds issued so that Spain and Italy can benefit, I guess, to the expense of others? I don't see that happening, but it could. That would be beyond the European monetary union beyond the European Central Bank. I would say that with respect to international monetary policy, uh, it's, it's best to have the central banks do what they need to do for their own economy. The Fed we talked about already. ECB has been doing things. The Bank of Japan is doing things. And to communicate as clearly as possible what those things are, why they're doing it, how long they think they will last. And then the central bank can take that into account. Sometimes monetary cooperation is best simply describing as clearly as possible what you're doing. Now, to be sure, that's something I've argued for a long time. Maybe I'm just trying to re make sure that the importance of that is clear in this current environment. But we have a lot of uncertainty, and we don't need more uncertainty by bad information about what central, central banks would do. I think the Fed's uh, creation of a facility to provide more dollars for countries so they don't sell their treasury bills is a good one. Um, I do have a worry uh, internationally about the very poor countries and the very poor parts of the world where it's going to be hard to put in these restrictions. People are already living close together. There's huge health care issues. So I think that's, that'll be a concern. Of course, that could come back and hurt uh, the developed world itself. But more important, it's a concern about, about the people in those economies. And I, I'm sorry, I could just add one thing. I think it's also bringing attention to disparities within the United States. Um, everybody's not doing well. Everybody hasn't done well. And I think, the, 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 unfortunately, this crisis will make, make it spread, make that distance spread a little bit, because those who are very poor off are going to probably be worse, and those who are better off, better. We don't know. I hope that doesn't happen, but it's a concern. So it'll bring more attention to that, which is okay. And I, I, don't, I think there should be more attention, say, to the homeless problem that exists in California or San Francisco, other parts of the world. And, and this may be beneficial in that sense, bring more attention to what we need to do about the problem. Um, here's a question from Stanley, uh, John. What lessons should be learned by our industry and about our over-reliance on other countries for key materials and products that have been exposed by this pandemic? Will anything change for the betterment of America? So that's a, it's a very good question, and it's on people's minds now because we've seen the supply chains being broken or questioned. I would just, first of all, be careful. Uh, I remember being involved with various restrictions, say, on the textile industry. Can, can't have imports of this kind of textile or that. And the rationale frequently was given. It was a national security issue. We had to be able to make uniforms for the soldiers and sailors. And if those were all imported, we wouldn't be able to do that in an emergency. So there's obviously alternatives. You could have stockpiles. You could have people who specialize in it. But I think there's a tendency for, for us to impose what would otherwise be restrictive actions in this name. So the supply chain is an issue with respect to medical supplies. We've seen that. It's been brought to our attention. People just see it every day in the news. And so those are more uh, national security issues. And so we ought to be careful about restricting supplies unless there's a real reason. One alternative, of course, is stockpiles. The U.S. could have more stockpiles of particular kinds of products or minerals 
that could be used in this kind of a situation rather than just breaking the supply chains completely. Yeah. John, uh, Katie asked a question that has to do with how the growing population of unemployed people in America, I know you've seen the, the, the new UI claims, for example, the 10 million. How, how, how is that going to impact demand in our economy going forward and the ability when we get back to work of companies to sell their goods and services? Well, it's important because it's like the feedback. You have a decline in employment and then you have a decline in income and more decline in purchases. It's a, economists call this a multiplier. And so, as you know, there's been lots of work on that. And so it's there, it's a real thing. So you want to try to break that as much as possible. So one breaking it is unemployment compensation. So people that are unemployed get some uh, of their earnings back through unemployment compensation. So they're able to participate and spend in the economy. So that's, uh, that's one way you break it. But there is this accumulative effect. I think that the, right now the, the main impact is the force of the, of the coronavirus and COVID-19 on restrictions on the economy. The, the main force is the people can't go to the store, they can't go to the theater, they can't go to the amusement park, et cetera. And so that's, that's got to be solved. I think in the meantime, you can have things like changing the unemployment compensation. You also can have loans to small business, which are in the bill. Uh, one thing which is important to look at is the payments um, of tax rebates, uh, tax payments to individuals. Um, roughly 300 billion of the bill was that. And uh, the idea is then people would take that money and spend it to keep the stores open or keep the online business continuing. But in the past, our experience with those actions, say back in 2008, has been that people haven't spent it that much. They've saved it. And you can see they may be worried. They're, they're not worried how long they'll have the job, so they might save anyway. But the main thing is don't save at all. Spend mm -hmm. a fraction of it. So that will undo the kind of things that we just mentioned, this spiraling effect. Yeah. John, you know, this, this uh, tension of restarting the economy in the face of this health risk, you know, augurs or suggests that we ought to have a decision-making process that thinks about that balance more seriously. From what you see by, by the decision-making process in Washington now in the White House and Congress and Fed, is there enough um, interplay of those two ideas to come up with sensible decisions to get us out of this crisis? I think there needs to be more on that. Uh, to be sure, I've always felt that the economics needs to be integrated more with the other parts, politics and defense, if you like, on the international side, but also on the domestic side. So to me, this reinforces that. I notice it. Um, I would think of testimony in Congress, and you got someone from the State Department, someone from the Defense Department, where's the person from the Treasury or the Council of Economic Advisors? So it's always an issue, Tom. And I think maybe it's illustrated more now than ever, and it's hard to do it. There's a tendency to crowd out the economics. It is a natural tendency. It's, it's less immediate. It's more abstract, markets versus individual actions. And so that I would say, let's try to make extra focus on that, whether it's in Congress, whether it's in administration, whether it's in local governments, whether it's in state governments, there's been relatively little. And there could be more. It's a, it's an a matter of attitude, a matter of, oh, uh, oh, I forgot that. I forgot about that market. Oh, yeah, we can open up that and not have any damage. You need to have people who are thinking about that all the time in the discussion. So it's a very important question. Got it. 
you know, um, any crisis, I guess, causes winners and losers. I hate to put it that way, but um, do you see uh, parts of the economy going forward that will be characterized by higher levels of growth and, uh, and prosperity than others? Yeah, I think it's, it's really related to the amount of digitalization um, that's out there. Uh, people um, can do business better if they're more digitalized and maybe even, maybe even benefit uh, compared to those who don't. So things, firms that are ready to go, online, just go back to education, online education, the extent that that's ready to go, that's going to benefit because people can do it right now. There's no setup costs or anything. And I think there's examples in that in other areas too. Some are some businesses are much better at providing services at a distance. Some are not. But so I think the thing the thing that's important about your question is it's not all negative. Unfortunately, it's predominantly negative. Mm-hmm. But it's not all negative. And finding and looking for some businesses that will do better is a key part of investing, obviously, but it's a key part of keeping the economy moving. Yeah. So that, I think the international side here is important because there'll be a tendency to close borders, to close travel, to close transportation. And we certainly don't want that to last. Uh, it's, a, it's a damaging effect. And I think there's a concern in that direction, too. So those industries might bounce back faster mm-hmm. uh, when they have the opportunity to do so. Yeah. David asked an interesting question. This may be outside your lane, John, but... Uh, give it a shot anyway. He says, anytime we have to respond to national crises, there's always a learning curve for national leadership. What do you think are the key lessons that needs to be learned and institutionalized to deal with future disease events? Well, the obvious answer is to be ready, and it's, but it's hard to be ready. Mm-hmm. I think the second answer is to have uh, people who know, relatively speaking, what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the formulation of a cabinet or a task force is very important to get people who are knowledgeable because everybody's not knowledgeable about everything and to bring those people in, in ready, they're, they're ready to go. So you could have a group of people that are ready to go for this pandemic. Let's make sure that we have a wide set of interests. I, and I think you're right. This is not something that I do every day, but I have done it. In my experience in government, several, several stints in, in the White House and the Treasury, is that if you have people who can be called on and they're ready to go, it's better. And here, it's, I think, also important to think is it's, it's not just the government. It's the private sector. You can call on people as advisors, call on the phone. What should we do here? What should we do there? And, and, and sort of be ready with that network of people. And, and, and clearly, the, the healthcare issue, healthcare people, are most important right now. They're on the front line. How how they're handling the situation is is very important. Got it. Well, John, we've reached the end of the hour. I want to thank you for your comments today. Do you have any concluding remarks you'd like to make? Actually, most I want to thank you and thank the Hoover Institution for for doing this. It's a it's a real service. We need to communicate more. You're going to have you have had people already. You'll have more people. So, thanks for you and what the whole team is doing, Tom. Great. Well, thanks so much, John. I want to remind everybody that our next virtual policy briefing will be Thursday, April 9th at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern time. The title of the briefing will be COVID-19 and the Lessons of History. Our guest will be Victor Davis Hansen. Victor is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. His focus is on classics and military history. He is a best-selling author who has written or edited 24 books, the latest of which is The Case for Trump. He's been awarded the National Humanities Medal and the Bradley Prize. 
You can join Tuesday's briefing at the same link you signed in on today. If you'd like to see more fellow analysis on the coronavirus, go to hoover.org where we have a section dedicated to COVID-19 research. Again, thank you for joining today. Uh, please have a pleasant day and stay healthy. Goodbye.